You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, good morning. How are we doing, everyone? All right. I haven't met you yet. My name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are on week three of our series, Embodied, where we are taking a look at the scriptures and what that has to say about the fact that God has given us bodies and what are the implications of all of that in scripture. And Alistair read for us, Alistair, read for us out of Genesis chapter two, uh, what I think is, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the definition of what marriage is about. So I don't want us to gloss over that. So if you have a Bible, will you turn with me there to Genesis 2? I would encourage you to open that up and just read along with me as we pull out all the insights and implications of what this text is about. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what we just read right here in Genesis 2 at one of the very first chapters of scripture is the origin story of marriage. And I recognize that word marriage can mean a lot of different things based off of your cultural background. In fact, that's how language works is that uh, words are culturally loaded symbols. So you could say something, but based off of your context and your time and place, you could have a totally different definition of what that word means based off of your cultural context. So for example, if I were to say to you, I'm going to the bank right now. Based off of our surroundings, that could mean one of a few things. If I'm walking down Main Street and I say, let's go to the bank right now, you might think to yourself, okay, Jake's going to the bank to like make a deposit or whatever. But if we're walking down the river walk and I say, I'm going to the bank right now, you might think, okay, Jake's going off the sidewalk to get closer to the water, the riverbank. I see what he means by that. If we are playing a game of pickup basketball, and I say, I'm going to the bank right now. You would think two things. You would think, what's Jake doing playing pickup basketball? That doesn't seem on brand. Is he going through a midlife crisis? What's going on? Why is he doing this? Second of all, you would think, oh, bank. So he's like about to do a bank shot. He's about to make some sweet trick off the backboard. And you would be right. And I would nail that shot perfectly. My point is words and phrases mean different things based off of your cultural surroundings. So when we get to this word marriage, I get there's a lot of loaded implications that depending your cultural background, you're going to have a different definition or understanding of marriage based off your surroundings. So I'll give you a, a couple of examples of what people think when we hear that word marriage. So definition number one is that marriage is for finding someone who completes you. 
That's a popular definition. This was actually popular and kind of brought forth during the time of the Roman Empire, which I think about a lot. And the Romans and the Greeks believed that before human beings were born, that you had this eternal soul. And what the gods did was they would take your soul and they would rip it in two and they would stuff each half of a soul into two different bodies. So you were born with half a soul and your job is to find that other half of your soul in a romantic partner to complete you. That's where we get this phrase to find your better half. It came out of this Greek Roman mythology. And my guess is no one really subscribes to that mythology anymore, but it's still very prevalent in popular culture. Find that romantic partner, find that romantic person who fulfills you, who completes you, who uh, makes life worth living, because if you don't have someone, then what's the point? You need to find this person to make yourself whole. That's one popular definition of when people talk about marriage, that's what they mean. A second one is very similar that says this, that marriage is for finding someone who makes you happy. Marriage is an expression of romantic feelings that exists for our happiness. I saw this tweet circulating online recently on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. It was a letter written by Amelia Earhart to her fiance, George Putnam. I'll read some of the highlights. She says this, there are some things which should be writ before we are married, things we have talked about over before, most of them. On our life together, I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. Yikes, okay, she keeps going. If we can be honest, I think the difficulties which arise may best be avoided should you or I become interested deeply or in passing in anyone else. All right, it's getting worse. I must exact a cruel promise, and that is you will let me go in a year if we find no happiness together. And I will try my best to do in every way and give you that part of me you know and seem to want. Oof, right? Now, I don't know if anyone be, would be so blunt to say that, but that is more or less the waters we swim in now when we talk about marriage. You like me, I like you, we like how we make each other feel, so let's keep this thing going, let's commit for now, and let's see if we continue to feel this way, because marriage is ultimately about my happiness, and how I feel. And if I no longer feel happy with you or you with me, then I would be wronging you and myself to stay in this marriage. So we owe it to ourselves to leave, to get out of this. We should be bold enough to love myself enough to leave if I'm no longer happy. That's what some people think when we talk about marriage. The problem with these definitions, though, is that they fall short and they are only temporary. So I'm only in this as long as my romantic feelings and my happiness are there. But if not, then I'm out. I'll find someone else. And what we're going to see in Genesis 2 is the origin story of marriage. God provides an alternative story, an alternative definition for marriage. In fact, Genesis 2 has a wedding ceremony. The Bible opens in a lot of ways with a wedding ceremony, in a lot of ways because it's all connected to everything we've talked about so far in this series. So to recap, weeks one and two, God gave us bodies with purpose and design, and he's blessed us out of his wisdom that he has given us bodies in our genders in such a way that we might reflect him and honor him in our gendered bodies. And within the first few pages of this ancient Jewish, Jewish text, it says God creates the two genders, male and female. 
So looking at the text again, if you have a Bible, Genesis 2, verse 18, I want you to take a look at what the text is doing. So look at verses 18 through 23. It is doing what's called a literary chiasm, which is this literary trick where the author deliberately rearranges some of the text to make this bigger point where it's like, here's part of the text at the beginning, here's part of the text at the end, but then there's this middle part, like the meat of the chiasm, where it's like, what are we doing here? But it's supposed to get across this big overall idea. Here's what I mean. So verse 18, God sees the problem. He says, all right, it's not good that man should be alone. We should do something about that. Then verses 21 and 22, God solves the problem. He says he has a deep sleep fall over the man. He takes the rib out of the man's side. And look, there's a woman. So it's like God sees the problem. He solves the problem. It's like, there you go. But then verses 19 and 20, it's really confusing. And for the longest time, it's like, yeah, but what's the deal with the animals though? Because that's like kind of distracting. And you know, me, I like fewer words. So like, why do we even need that middle chunk? But that's part of the chiasm here because God is trying to show the man the same problem that God sees. Here's what I mean. God wants to show the man the same problem that he sees. So God's like, all right, it's not good that man be alone. Adam, I want you to go name the animals. And in the process, the man's like, okay, well, I see these two animals are the same, but they're different. So elephants, this, I see two elephants. This one's, these two are kind of the same, but they're different in uh, some particular part. Okay, that's weird. All right, next one, monkeys. All right, two monkeys. All right. Okay, these two look the same, also different. Again, huh, that's weird. Then after all of that, the man sort of thinks and reflects and says, oh, there's, there's kind of no one like me who's like me but different than me. And only when the man sees the problem does God do something about it in verses 21 and 22. Then verses 23 through 25 is the summary statement about marriage. So out of the problem that the man sees and God sees that God solves, here's now this summary statement about marriage, the first ever wedding ceremony right there in the garden. Verse 24, it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's a phrase that if you've been to a wedding ever, you have probably heard this, but I want to look at it more closely. So back then, people didn't move out of their parents' home until they were married. So you could have large intergenerational households. And when a man and woman marry, they leave their respective family units to become a brand new family unit. The language of a man holding fast is the Hebrew word devak. It literally means to cling to, to intertwine, to mingle, to fasten yourself to this other person to say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm stuck to you from here on out. Verse 25 says that they are naked and unashamed, all right? So it doesn't mean that they're like weirdly confident about their bodies when they walk into the locker room or anything like that. Instead, the word shame, typically in that context, had to do with military defeat and exploitation, the Hebrew word bosh. So an enemy or an army is put to shame in war. So when the man and the woman are without shame, you know, don't read any like Western psychology into that. Rather, it's saying there's no fear of someone or something trying to ruin or destroy or exploit what they have. They're confident in who they are and who God has made them to be. And they're confident in their spouse. They're transparent and they're open with one another. 
And it's through this covenantal commitment with one another, with openness and honesty, that God intends for them to fill the world with image bearers who in turn can reflect God's love to all of creation. So that is a quick 30,000 foot view of what marriage is according to Genesis 2. So if I were to give you a working definition, it's a little bit of words, but bear with me. Marriage is a God-made covenant union across difference with life-creating potential. I'll say that again, and then I'm going to break it down for us. Marriage is a God-made covenant union across difference with life-creating potential. So let me just break that down bit by bit to let me, so that you can see what I mean. So marriage is God-made, first of all, all right? Now, I think that's a big one. Might be one of the biggest components of it, that it is God-made. And I can give you reasons why the Bible says what it says about marriage. And I can show you from evidence why I think it is the best definition of marriage. The thing is, though, me arguing that it's the best can't prove it, per se. It's like me arguing that I think the best actor around is Keanu Reeves, which I believe. And I've believed that for a long time, even non-ironically. I believe if we were to go toe-to-toe, I would argue he is the best actor, like ever. He's great. But I can't prove that. However, when it comes to marriage, I think I can prove this first part, that marriage is God-made. Now, for some people, they can finagle their way out of this, but here's what I think is strong evidence for this is that marriage is God made because marriage is a cultural universal. It's a cultural universal. Here's what I mean. If you were to throw a dart on a map and take a plane and travel anywhere in the world, no matter how advanced or primitive the culture is, there exists something like marriage near everywhere you go. Likewise, if you were to create a time machine and travel back 300 or 3,000 years into the past, there exists something like marriage in near every society, even societies that have no connection with others on the other side of the globe. There exists in some form or fashion in near every society, marriage. Now, an evolutionary biologist would look at that and they would explain that away and say, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's hardwired into your DNA. It's hardwired within you to procreate and to find a partner to make babies. So, yeah. And as a follower of Jesus, who is a big fan of science, I look at that and think, well, yeah, but who hardwired that into your DNA in the first place? And why would they do that? And the answer goes back to Genesis 2. God has embedded into near every society since the dawn of time the act of marriage because he made it and he designed it. And when we live into that design, cultures flourish as a result. This is why the American College of Pediatricians calls marriage, quote, a benefit to society. With social scientists backing this up, pointing to decades and decades of research, social scientist Barbara Whitehead notes the correlation between strong, healthy marriages and how it fosters social connections, civil and religious involvement, and charitable giving. Marriage connects men and women to the larger community and encourages personal responsibility and family commitment and community volunteerism and social altruism. As well, sociologist Brad Wilcox notes that marriage most effectively teaches children the civic virtues of honesty and loyalty and trust and self-sacrifice and personal responsibility and respect for others. And again, I hear all that data from the evolutionary biologist to the social scientist, Christian or not Christian, and I can't help but think, well, yeah, because Genesis 2, because God is a good God, he made it. And when we live into that design, humanity flourishes as a result. 
Now, even as I say that, like, hear me, I am well aware that right after Genesis 2 is Genesis 3, where sin enters the world and all the ramifications and brokenness that result from that. And I know full well that many of you have experienced in a thousand different ways the impact of broken marriages, whether you grew up with one or had one or saw one. And let me just say, like, I hear that and that breaks my heart. That being said, even if you've seen or experienced the broken examples, it doesn't mean the ideal itself is broken. That's what I want to communicate this morning, the biblical ideal, what God made and intended for the world, that it is God made. And the second part, that it's a covenant union. It's a covenant union. So we don't really use that word uh, much nowadays. But back then, covenants were a pretty big deal. It's how you kept your word. It's how you kept your promises. A covenant was a pledge and a promise that says, I promise to be faithful to this covenantal ideal. I promise to be loyal to our commitments no matter what. And it's this clinging, marriage is this clinging covenant, this divakness that we see in Genesis 2. It's this covenant of cherishing and clinging to one another no matter what happens in this world, no matter how you're feeling, no matter your circumstances, when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year to say, I'll be there for you when the rain starts to pour. It's the process of learning to be without shame with one another, to be fully transparent and open with your spouse. And this is only possible through covenanting with someone else, making this lifelong pledge in both sickness and in health till death do us part to the other. And if I may just go ahead and say the blunt thing, I would argue with this definition, that this part is probably the most important part of the definition and sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. I might argue this part, this covenant union, might actually be the weirdest thing that Christians believe when it comes to marriage. This covenant aspect, when you're willing to say, I choose you over everyone else, including myself. I'm here for the long haul to serve you, to give my life away to you, to commit to change and to grow and to willingly pledge my life to you, knowing full well my time and my finances and my freedom and my personality are all going to severely change massively because of this promise I am making to you for the rest of our lives. And when you hear that, do you know how wild that sounds to a modern American? where we're all about freedom and maximizing happiness and maximizing your options. We're all about contractual, conditional relationships that say, I'm in this so long as my happiness is intact and you keep your end of the deal. Now, hear me, happiness is fine in a marriage, okay? Big fan of happiness. I hear some people, like some Christian pastors and thinkers go like so far to the extreme, like it's not about your happiness at all. It's like, okay, let's, let's not get carried away. Happiness Good, good thing, okay? And it's not the ultimate thing. The covenant, on the other hand, is actually ultimate. It's the foundational necessity for growth and overcoming your problems in the marriage. Because you know, because you're clung together, you have to figure things out. When conflict happens, when there's personality quirks that annoy each, when you annoy each other, when you're just going back and forth to know like, I have a covenant, which means we're in this for the long haul. We need to figure this out, okay? And the thing is, if you don't have a covenant, if you don't have this pledge to never leave each other, no matter what, how can you just grow and mature and flourish? Why go through 
all of that, working through your problems, if you know that they could just pack out at any second. That's why a covenant is so big. I love how theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas over at Duke, he says it like this. He says, we never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, I hear the married people laughing, I hear it. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. I love that. It is one of my favorite lines about marriage, learning to love the stranger to whom you're married to. I remember my wife and I, we've been married a little over 10 years now, and this was a while back. We were reflecting on how we've changed and grown in the last 10 years, and I remember my wife saying, you know, gotten a lot weirder in the last 10 years. Like I was new, you were like jokey, you know, you like to be humorous, but like your humor has gotten really weird. I just want you to know that. And I was like, hey baby, love the stranger you're with. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. We're, you're stuck to me. I'm sorry. What can we do? Now again, as I say that, I want to be clear what I'm not saying. I am well aware of brokenness and sin that can take place in a marriage that can cause all sorts of harm and destruction to others in so many ways, and I hate that so much. And my hope is if that is you, that you would, that you would experience hope and healing from Jesus, that you would experience hope and healing in our church family. Yes, yes and amen. And the broken experiences does not diminish God's ideal. So hear me, I'm just, I'm talking out of Genesis 2, what the biblical ideal is, okay? And that brings me to the last part. A cross difference with life-creating potential. A cross difference with life-creating potential. So this is the case that Genesis is building towards, that it finds its apex with Genesis 2, with the marriage ceremony, but it's, it's all building to this across difference for life-creating potential. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it talks about be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2, the man is looking for someone to cultivate and keep the garden with him as commanded. And woman is made as the answer to this, to join this life-giving, earth-shaping work with him. And again, back to Genesis 2, the man found a partner that complemented him for the purpose of creating new life. So hear this, this is pretty huge. The woman was both like him in his nature and unlike him in his nature so that life could come forth. Now that's huge for two reasons. Reason number one, we see this explicitly in the text, uh, even linguistically, Genesis 2, man and woman, it's the Hebrew word ish and isha. So linguistically, we're supposed to see similar but dissimilar. We see in Genesis 2, Eve is called an ezer, a helper. So what does he need help with? He needs help with creating image bearers and cultivating the world. Eve is formed from Adam's rib. In Hebrew, it's the word selah. Another way to translate that is his side. Eve is part of him, but different from him. Adam says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, is literal in the sense that she is part of him, and now the two can become one so that life can go forth. Again, before I move on, for the sake of clarity and nuance here, um, I am well aware Genesis 3 and all of the ramifications and brokenness that results from uh, marriages even wanting to create life. Uh, if you've lost children or dealt with infertility or a miscarriage, my heart as a pastor uh, just goes out to you and it's devastating and it is 
heartbreaking. And um, as someone who's experienced a, a miscarriage before as well, I want you to find hope. I want you to find healing in Jesus. I want you to find hope and healing in our church family because you are not alone in this. And for our purposes today, we're talking about big picture truth when it comes to God's design. Not empirical to every individual couple's experience in this broken world. We're just zooming out. We're talking about Genesis 2 ideal stuff. But here's the second reason why this is big. That woman was both like him in his nature and unlike him in his nature. And it's in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians 5. It's going to be on the screen, but this is huge. Starting in verse 31, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's, he's just directly quoting Genesis 2, 24, right there. But then he says this in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. That word mystery is the Greek word musterion. And in that context, it doesn't mean when he says mystery that they had no clue whatsoever what marriage was about, because as we looked in Genesis 2, they did know what marriage was about. They had a working definition. And Paul is saying that marriage ultimately points to something bigger. And that only became evident when Jesus came to earth and lived and died and conquered death. He says this Genesis 2 stuff is actually all pointing to the larger reality of what God was doing through his son, Jesus. Here's what I mean. So take that previous definition we had of what marriage is about and notice how each part of that definition of marriage in Genesis 2 corresponds in some way to Ephesians 5 and the Jesus story. Notice how marriage is a God-made covenant. And here, when you think about it, God made covenant with us. God made covenant with us. The marriage covenant points to the bigger covenant in Jesus. God made covenant with us. God says, I'm not going anywhere. Through faith in me, I am committed to you in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, in life and even beyond death. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. The marriage covenant points to the greater covenant God makes with us. But how did God make covenant with us? Here's the next part. Across difference through Jesus. So Jesus, as fully man and fully God, is both like us in our nature and unlike us in our nature. So as fully man, he can sympathize with our sin and become the perfect sacrifice for sin. And as fully God, he can fully forgive our sin and reconcile us back to the Father through faith in him. And when I place my faith in Jesus, it's like I'm exchanging vows to say, you, Jesus, are who I follow now. Now and forever, I follow you. And I get, yes, all analogies ultimately break down. But Paul says this biblical definition of marriage is one of the stronger analogies woven into the fabric of creation as a universal sign across all times and cultures and places to demonstrate how like man and woman are both similar and different and they covenant together. So God sends his son Jesus, both similar and different in our nature, to covenant with us, which brings me to that last point for life-creating potential through the Holy Spirit. So as man and woman covenant across difference for life-creating potential, God makes covenant with us across difference through Jesus so that we can have life through the Spirit. That's why the New Testament talks about being born again. 
of being a new creation because of the Spirit bringing forth life in us and through the Spirit in you. When you are on mission and you tell others about Jesus, you are partnering with God to create more life through his Spirit in others. And the marriage story is actually all pointing to the Jesus story. Each part of it corresponds in some way with what God is doing in us and through us. This is why elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will make a similar argument, but in reverse in Romans 1, communicating how when marriage and intimacy veer away from the biblical definition, it's no longer a picture of what the Father is doing through his Son Jesus by the power of the Spirit, but rather it becomes a picture of self-absorption and idolatry. So all that to say, this is the biblical picture according to Genesis 2 of what marriage is supposed to be and how it's defined. And that means the end goal for followers of Jesus is not marriage. Rather, the end goal is Jesus and his mission. So with all of that, I've got three reflections as to what this all means for us. So first, when it comes to this topic, especially in the public sphere, I get that there can be a lot of frustration people have over this topic, uh, where it's like, we hold to a definition, but then someone else holds to another definition and another to another definition. And it just feels like, whether you're on social media or you tune into the 24-7 news cycle or whatever, it just feels like people are frustrated and shouting back and forth at each other in such vitriol and such anger where it's like, no, but I think this about marriage and I think this about marriage. And if you disagree with me or ask me questions, well, then you're devaluing my humanity. I get that. And I want us to understand that when we talk about marriage, just like I said from the beginning, People are coming at it with different stories underneath it, with different definitions of what marriage is supposed to be. And they're coming at it from their own stories, just like we are coming at it from our own stories. And the beauty about the story that we hold to is we have a category for those who don't share the same story we do. In fact, our story, the Jesus story, calls us to invite others in who don't hold the same viewpoints as us, to ask questions to build friendships, to open up our lives and our homes and affirm the image of God in them, to affirm their dignity and value and worth, even when they don't agree with us, so that in the process, we can share the Jesus story with them and how they can be invited into it as well. Second reflection is that the beauty of the story we live in, the Jesus story, for those who are married, informs how to live into our marriages. To know God gives grace to me, even when I'm at my worst. So husbands, wives, you can extend grace to the other even when they're at their worst, even when you're at your worst. To know if the ultimate covenant is what God has made with me, then that informs my covenant with my spouse. I can show grace to them. I can show forgiveness to them. To know that God is faithful and committed to my growth. If that's what the ultimate covenant is about, so husbands and wives, that informs your commitment to each other, to be for each other, to help each other change and grow for the good. To know that this greater covenant, God clings to me no matter what. No matter what pain and heartbreak and brokenness I'm going through. He is never going anywhere. He will never leave me or forsake me. So husbands and wives, because of the greater covenant we have with Jesus, that informs our covenant with one another. To know we can cling to each other. To know that we are not going anywhere no matter what. Third and final reflection is that the story of Genesis 2 and how it points to the Jesus story we see in Ephesians 5 actually isn't the end of the story. The Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. 
So in Revelation 19, it says that God's bride, the church, will one day be radiant. And for those in Christ, we will finally be united with God, free from sin and death forever and a love unbreakable. And nothing can take that away. A love across difference. So that means whether marriage is something you have and enjoy, or maybe it's something you have and don't enjoy. Whether marriage is something you want desperately or don't want at all. In the end, marriage is pointing to an ultimate thing that is available to all of us. God's infinite loyal love and pledge to us through faith in his son, Jesus. It's as though God in his infinite wisdom knew just how incredible all of this is and will be. And it's as though God, before time even began, said to himself, how can I show people just how beautiful all of this is that I'm making available to them? How can people even wrap their minds around all I am going to do for them through my son Jesus and what I'm preparing for them one day in Revelation? How can they even begin to wrap their minds around it? And it's as though God thought to himself, do you know what I'll do? I'm going to invent a human relationship that gets close to the type of relationship I want to have with people. So that when they say, I don't understand, God, why you would love me so much. And God, even in my sin, you still say you're going to be with me no matter what. I don't understand. So that when they're asking those questions, I can say, if you want to know the sort of relationship I want to have with you, just look at a marriage. That's why he invented it so that you could have something to help you understand the type of relationship God wants to have with you, a God-made covenant union across difference with life-creating potential through the Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me, please?